First we begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, so by way of review, how many chief parts are there in the small catechism? Six, good. Anybody, uh, let's collectively. Although I don't know, there's that, there's that one poster you've probably seen that says meetings, because all of us are dumber than one of us. <laughs> I think they're called anti-motivational posters. All the time I spent in the corporate world part-time um, as I was a student going through, ah, couldn't ring more true. Anyway, well, let's hope that that's not the case, or let's buck that trend. So, six chief parts. What's the first? Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments. Very good. And these are laid before us as the head of the household should teach his household. So, again, we're seeing right off the bat that the catechism, the, the real home of the catechism isn't in the church. The real home of the catechism is on your kitchen table. That's the real place. This is the... You've got a manual for your microwave. The other day I said VCR. I felt terrible. <laughs> Everyone was like, what is that? Yeah. Oh, getting old. So you've got, you've got a manual for your smart TV. Uh, you've got a manual for all kinds of things. Uh, you need a manual for your family. And that's what the catechism is. You can think concretely about the table of duties that we covered last week, really giving you the job description, the list of duties, and how refreshing and freeing that is to not be tied up into societal expectations, almost none of which are biblical, but to just simply be set free with, this is the job description that God gives me to be a husband or a wife, parents or child, worker or employer. So the table of duties forms that framework for us, but then the first chief part, the commandment, starts to give the content of that framework. This is what God desires for us to do. This is how he desires us to live. Inevitably, as we go about our day trying to live out the Ten Commandments, does that go swimmingly? No. Now, we're daily sinning greatly in thought, word, and deed. And of course, our goal is to keep it just a thought <laughs> and then repent of that. The real damage is done is when, that, when we lose the battle and that thought becomes word or deed because then it hurts and harms those around us. All right, but nonetheless, the Ten Commandments are set out by the head of the Christian household as template for this is how we are to live and live in a way that's pleasing to God. You might even take uh, the catechism's advice and begin your day by making the sign of the cross in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, remembering your baptism, remembering that you're clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness that covers all your sin, and then reciting the Ten Commandments. I've taken to do this recently with my kiddos. It's a lot of fun. Uh, you can have, and, and they've got all kinds of questions. So, Ten Commandments, Recite them. Then follow that by the creed, which is what chief part? 
The second. See, this is not rocket science. And then follow that by the Our Father, the Lord's Prayer. And there's the third chief part. So that simply part of your daily devotion can be these three chief parts. All of it is, depending on how many kids or whatever else you have pestering you, all of it can be done in under five minutes. It's really astonishing. You've even got time to pick up a psalm and read a psalm before you're exhausted. So this is a great way to start your day. Um, and to set these Ten Commandments ever before our eyes as the will of God. That's the first chief part. Second chief part, as we mentioned, is the creed. We learn who God is and what he's done for us. We learn that he's the gracious Father who gives us all that we are in half. So everything, that really changes. The more we understand and believe this, uh, it changes the way we see everything. Everything is a gift. Even the afflictions. We can count it all joy because we know his fatherly goodness and that he promises to work good out of these afflictions. Second article about the Son, true God, true man, one person, who laid down his life in order to redeem me. That language of redemption is technical language from the Old Testament. In order to redeem one thing, something else has to die. So to redeem me, Christ had to die. Thus he purchased and won me, not with gold or silver, but with his own precious blood, his innocent sufferings and death, that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom, etc. Okay, second article. Third article, the Holy Spirit. And here, the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit because he makes everything holy. Yeah, that's Luther's point, so you can't forget. So you have the Christian church, the forgiveness of sins, the communion of the saints, um, resurrection of the body, life everlasting, etc. All those things put in the third article because these are things that the Holy Spirit creates to be holy in their ways in which he makes us holy. They're a kind of a summary of his holy activities among us. All right, so there's the second chief part, and all of that having to do with who God is, how he answers our sin, puts it away, how he daily richly takes care of us, how he sustains us in the true faith, and how he's bringing us to the resurrection of our bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. In other words, it's all there. Now, God desires to relate to us as our Father. And we learn that in the first article of the Creed. We learn how that's possible in the second and third. So we are given to pray, Our Father who art in heaven, etc. And that's the third chief part. The last three chief parts, are you going to be able to name them? Okay, what's the, fir- oh, what's the third, I should say? Or, excuse me, fourth. Yeah. Baptism, correct. Fourth chief part is baptism. What's the fifth? Confession, Confession absolution. Uh-huh. And what's the sixth? Sacrament of the altar, Holy Communion. Yeah. So these three things are God's gifts to us, whereby he makes us and keeps us Christian in the forgiveness of sins. So you're baptized, and you remember there's four verses that the catechism used to describe baptism. And then uh, absolution, confession absolution. Remember in John chapter 20, Jesus is risen from the dead. He comes into the midst of his disciples, the doors being locked for fear of the Jews. He shows them his hands on his side, it is I, peace be with you. And then he breathes on them, says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you retain the sins of any, they're retained. So confession, absolution, the office of the keys. Okay, and then last but not least, the Lord's Supper, which is the height, the pinnacle, uh, the most intimate, the most glorious thing this world has ever known or will ever know. And because all that comes next is that heavenly feast of which the last chapters of Revelation speak. So in Holy Communion, we have a 
foretaste of that feast. So, different from that feast, in that that's the feast and this is the foretaste, but connected, organically connected with that feast because it is, in fact, a foretaste. I use this example in one of my Thursday classes. Those of you who are in Thursday class, sorry, you have to hear it again. But when my mom, uh, when we were growing up, my mom would make homemade pizza. And just the smell of the dough, and oh, just glorious, glorious smells emanating from the kitchen. I can't believe I'm not 300 pounds. And, uh, and then she'd be cooking the sausage, because you have to have sausage, and the vegetables, and everything would be, you could smell the feast that is to come. And of course, as is our way, we'd come begging and slouching about, trying to snitch things. A little more bold the older we got, because it would hurt less, you know, if we got wet. <laughs> so, so finally, my mom would compromise, and she'd take a toothpick, and she'd put a little bit of the sausage and a little mushroom on there, maybe an onion, dip it in some of the sauce, and give it to us. Ah, oh, a foretaste of the feast to come. You see, it's the same thing as the feast. So in Holy Communion, we recognize we have a taste of what's to come, the fullness of communion with God, with angels, archangels, and the whole company of heaven. But this is the best it gets, this side of all of that. All right. So um, those are the six chief parts. Good, good, good. And, um, of course, the Catechism in teaching us how to pray, we covered the first part, that it, this morning prayer, and we can even recite the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer. We pray at meals, um, uh, the three meals, and then at the close of the day, making the sign of the cross, praying the Our Father again, confessing any sins we have or that are on our minds, praying for any needs that we have that developed over the course of the day. It's really a lovely and a wonderful way. In fact, I, I'm just convinced of the glory of this, so I can't stop talking about it, because so much of what we're up against in the world today is chaos and disorder and more than we can take in. You know, you, you look at your news app or you, you know, Google News and whatever articles come up or whatever you click on, and, the, and it's just overwhelming. Every single day it's overwhelming. It tends to be very negative, very sorrowful, horrific, evil, death everywhere, sorrow everywhere. That's just how it is. We're being overwhelmed. I mean, I, as just a single human being, am not meant to bear the weight of the evils of the world. There is only one man who could do that, and his name's Jesus. Not Jeremy. And that goes for all of us, right? Um, So we need to realize, and I think the best way we can do this is, well, first of all, stop looking at the news so much. Just realize it's toxic and not for you. Some headlines here and there are enough, but truth be told, somebody's going to tell you anyway if it's worth knowing. All right? But then on a more fundamental level, we need to start looking at our lives. We need to recover this biblical theology of the day. Give us this day our daily bread sufficient for the day is the trouble thereof and this does a beautiful organizing thing because when i confess when i go to look past my day and confess my sins and offer my prayers it's suddenly really concrete well at nine o'clock i realized my kiddo was struggling with reading so god please help that at 11 o'clock i lost my patience with my other kids so god please forgive that Right? And, and so you're breaking your day up. You, I mean, first of all, you're breaking your life up into day, which is you can handle a day. We're designed to handle a day. And then even that day, you're breaking up between prayer time. And this is such a beautiful and necessary structure 
in a structureless, chaotic, and disordered world. So this is how we begin it. And then from that, I'm not trying to pit one against the other, but from that day we can move on and, you know, you get, you get into the seventh day and you're at divine service. And so the day gives way to a weekly order. And how can you have a week without coming physically present with God's people to hear his word? He's present there. I mean, if we really believed what was happening in divine service, we would never miss. He is truly present there. He is truly speaking to us. We hear his word read, but what do we immediately confess? The, the, the pastor, the vicar says, this is the word of me. This is the thing I just read. This is the word of the Lord. And everybody says, thanks be to God. That's the so we're saying this is the living voice of the living God in our midst, he who has come to visit us. And then in the Lord's Supper, it's the same way. If we had any idea what it was that we were received in the Lord's Supper, we'd be there every single time. We'd never miss. We'd find this to be the grounding of our being, such that even if we lose track of the days or fall off the prayer schedule or whatever may happen, that weekly renewal with our Lord never stops. And in fact, that's really the essence of the Sabbath day when the third commandment was given. It continues to be the essence of the third commandment today, even though it's not on the Sabbath day, it's the day of the Lord, is, hey, God has moved into the neighborhood. That's the theology of the tabernacle, isn't it? God has set up his tent in the midst of your tents, and he is saying, come over. Every, every Saturday, that's when my kids need to come over. You can have all the other days, you can scramble around and do whatever you want, but every Saturday, I, the Heavenly Father, want my children gathered to me so that we can be together as a family. And the same thing happens every week in divine service. It's your Heavenly Father, your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit permeating it all, saying, it's family day. And yeah, when you're gone, he's like, where are you? Well, I saw it online. That's not, I mean, Okay, a phone call is better than nothing, (laughs) but I'd rather you be here. I'd rather you partake of the feast and hear the words and embrace your brothers and sisters and lift them up if they're struggling. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. This is a family life I have for you. You So in the same time that we bemoan how lonely and isolated and non-communal our society is, the church has the answer. It's all right here in the family and household of God. Okay, so that then brings us into the topic at hand for today, which is membership. You are members of the family of God. That's the first way that we can think about biblical membership. I'm going to take a little bit of a different route with it, ultimately, because I want to take a little bit more of a historic route. But suffice it to say that when you are born of water and spirit, you are born into a new family. No longer are you born in the image and likeness of fallen Adam and the fallen human race, but you are born in the image and likeness of God, of Christ Jesus, our Savior. And thus, you know, your, your, uh, your last name tells us what earthly family you belong to, and your first name tells us who you are within that family. But when you're baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you become a member of a new family, His name given to you, and then it is within that family that you have your siblings. So we are members of that family. 
And yes, when members of the family go missing at the local congregation, it hurts. It's painful. Believe it or not, it really is. Because, because you're going, well, where, where is that person? Where is my brother? Where is my sister? I hope they're okay. I hope emergency hasn't arisen. I hope they're spiritually healthy. What's happening that they aren't here with us? And then there's also a kind of selflessness in that family image of as brothers and sisters in Christ, we come to church not just for ourselves, but for all who are gathered there. We have to think a little bit more selflessly, a little less self-centeredly, because your physical presence there, if nothing else, says to everyone else who's present there, this is important. So just simply being there is telling everyone else this is important. By not being there, you're saying to everyone else, eh. Now, of course, nobody, nobody you know, has a problem if it's like, oh, I missed this week because I was sick. No, if you're sick, especially post-pandemic, uh, yeah, good to stay at home, please. Um, that's okay. That's a loving act. Um, you go on vacation. Yeah, you're traveling. We get it. No problem. You know, everybody knows. But it's like, well, I was just missing because it's my custom, it's my practice. Ouch. Ouch. So, in the first place, you only want to be with your father once or twice a month? In the second place, you only want to be with us once or twice a month? You see how this is going? So, as membership, we're called to more than a self-centered way of looking. And, by the way, I think how most Americans hear membership, and at least those who I've welcomed into uh, membership here at Faith, um, the, the thought is, well, why do I want to become a member? And I think what's, what's operant there is a view that membership is like membership at a gym. Have you, any of you ever had a membership at a gym? So, you have to sign a contract, and once you're in, you can never get out. <laughs> and it's expensive. And what if you don't like the management? Or what if the equipment changes? What if the rules change? What if the times the gym is open or shut change? All of this is subject to what you, as the customer, as the consumer, like or don't like, and you're constantly evaluating it like, I'm the consumer, I'm the one that needs to be pleased with this. Now, when that attitude comes into how we view church, then we're going to view everything in a skewed way. We're going to start to see the church more like a club, and why would I join this club, and what do I get out of joining this club, and what are the hidden fees and the fine print and the financial obligations and what if all those things change that we had just mentioned at the gym changing? What do I do then? So I think what we want to see is that no, in the first place, it has nothing to do with any of this. And where we see these kinds of attitudes and thoughts creeping in, we can see that we've got a very unbiblical attitude of church membership going on. We want to cleanse ourselves. So we're members of a family in the first place. But in the second place, membership is being members of a body. Whose body do you think that is? Christ's body here in this place. Yeah, so there's kind of a, another poignant image. If you're not gathered here as the, you're members of the body of Christ, and if, and if you're not here, are you disfiguring your Lord? Jesus is here, but where's his arm? Where's his leg? Where's his ear? 
Maybe that's taking it too far, but I think you can see the point. Now, let's get into a biblical theology. I think we did okay with baptism and being born into the family of God and family members. Everybody kind of gets this, I think. But let's get a little more concrete, a little more historical, and hopefully this will open your eyes then to see how uh, the church has worked throughout the ages. And we can talk about some things as we kind of process down the line here. And this, by the way, as we process down the line, is going to be a wonderful opportunity for you to ask any questions you might have about why the LCMS is the way it is, or why Faith Lutheran Church is the way she is, or why is our governance and structure set up the way it is, etc. And almost more importantly, definitely more importantly, what can I do to participate? How can I use the treasures and talents God's given me to enrich this place? Okay, so uh, open with me in your Bibles to, I promise we'll get to the catechism, but open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians 10. Does anyone know how to operate the uh, air conditioning? Thank you so much. Well, just cold is fine. <laughs> if, I was, if I was in the Matrix movie, I'd be making the robotic overlords a lot of energy right now. Thank you so much. Oh, yeah, sorry. First Corinthians 10, please. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think when Jesus came up out of the waters of holy baptism and the Holy Spirit descended upon him like a dove, there was like this really cool breeze that came with the wings. That's part of it. So as the air kicks on here, we'll pray that the Holy Spirit enlightens us, keeps us awake, and keeps us focused. Okay, so what I want to do for our purposes, let's just go to 1 Corinthians uh, 10, 14. Here, St. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. As I speak, or I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless. Is it not a participation? Now, the language here is koinonia, which is where we get the language, as it goes through Latin into English, communion. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a communion in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a communion in the body of Christ. So what's being stated here already? Well, the cup that is blessed becomes the blood of Christ, and to receive that cup is to receive the blood of Christ in such a way that we are in communion with him. But is it just me who's communing? No, it's all of us together, so we're in communion with each other. And likewise, the bread that we break It is a communion in the body of Christ. To eat that bread is to receive and eat the body of Christ and to have a communion with him, but we're not alone in that. We're together in that. So you can see where the language of holy communion comes from. It comes from our unity with Christ and with one another by partaking of the bread and cup. Does everybody see that? Verse 17, Because there is one bread, we who are many are 
one body, for we all partake of the one bread. All right, let's pause there. With this thought resonating in our minds, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. Now, this is 1 Corinthians 10. In 1 Corinthians 12, he's going to talk about all of the Corinthian Christians as being different members of this body. Some being like mouths, some being like feet, some being like hands. And his point there is we, as different members, all have different gifts, yet we are one body. Now, where does he, where, what's the origin of that theology of us being one body and then members of one another, members of Christ? It's right here at Holy Communion. So to partake of the bread that is his body is to become one body with him and one body with each other. Does that make sense? And then members of that body. So here is where membership comes from in an ecclesiastical or in a church sense. It comes from where you commune, there you receive the body. Where you receive the body with others, there you are, members of the same body. So church membership, even though I don't know why it's become like this, has nothing to do with filling out a form, giving the office your top secret information. There's nothing top secret about it. Um, Receiving a copy of the Constitution and bylaws and attending voters' meetings. That doesn't have anything to do with membership at the formal foundational level. Where you commune, There you are a member. Does that make sense? Okay. So, when we go back into history looking for denominations. Now, denomination is a strange word. We all take it to mean, well, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Lutheran, whatever. But denominations, you can hear the word of nomen or nominate, right? So, uh, nominate. It's basically giving a name to divisions within Christianity. But denominations, to describe this phenomenon, is a new term. Do you know what they were called all the way back unto the second century? First century, all the New Testament is being written. Second century, the earliest of the early church. And do you know what they called divisions? Different communions. Different communions. Now, that is a far better way to look at it. Which communion do you belong to? Now, of course, these divisions, you would say, well, one communion, the communion of Jesus Christ. But unfortunately, even in the New Testament documents themselves, you can already see divisions emerging, can't you? And by the second century, there are what we would call denominations, different denominations, but what were frequently called different communions. So you might hear Roman Catholic apologists saying this kind of thing, that denominations are a fruit of the Reformation. Because this is a bad fruit, the Reformation must be a bad tree. Have you heard this argument? There was no such thing as a denomination before the 16th century. Patently false. All throughout the history of the church, there were different denominations, that is to say, different communions. Now, the thing about a different communion is you're saying, here is where I partake of the body of Christ. Here are the people I am united with. Here is the doctrine I confess as my own. And someone else might 
depart from that. For example, Vicar's going to talk in the next couple of weeks for us about Arianism. So Arius comes along, this very early church heresy, and he starts preaching that there was a time when Christ was not. That is, Christ is a creature who became divine. Is that what you believe? If so, I can point you to the nearest Mormon church, because that's what the Mormons believe. Okay, so you would not be in union with such a person. You would not go to the Lord's table with such a person when they're saying, yeah, he's not really God. And you say, yes, he is. At a certain point, you're going to say, the most godly thing for us to do is recognize that we have disunity and to have different communions. Does that make sense? Okay. So then as the history of the church progresses along, this is how you can come to understand why there are so many different communions. Why there is Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, Lutherans of different stripes, and we don't commune with each other. Okay. Episcopalians, Eastern Orthodox, and of different stripes, they don't all commune with each other either. Okay, all of this has been the way it has been since the dawn of the New Testament, and it continues. So then your quest is to find a local congregation that preaches and teaches the gospel purely, administers the sacraments rightly, and you can in good conscience say, I am united with the faith confessed in this place. I am united with these people in their communion. I partake of the communion and, of the, and I partake of the body of Christ and so become a member of the body of Christ in that place. So far, so good? All right, so this is biblical understanding of membership. And then congregations don't want to be independent, or at least not for very long. Another name for an independent Lutheran congregation? Cult. Cult. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. I was going to say, any name for a, I, my, yeah, 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 that's good. My first, um, yeah, the name for an independent Lutheran church is not Lutheran. The name for any independent church is not church, but cult. Because there is no recognition of a larger body or fellowship. It is simply what that pastor says Goes or what that governing board of elders or whatever says goes. That is uh, nothing like the Christian church. So we want to find other Christians that we're united to, and that is in fact um, the history then of our specific version of the Lutheran church. So Reformation happens, a couple hundred years pass, maybe a little bit more. You can tell I'm quite the precise historian, can't you? Um, and things get really bad over in Germany with a state church. Let's kind of go back to um, the two kingdoms we talked about last week. Or at least great interference by the state into the church. So one of the things that's happening is uh, Frederick is telling everyone in Prussia, hey, Lutherans, reform, tomato, tomato, you guys all have to commune together. And the Lutherans are going, but we believe that it's the body of Christ we receive on our lips. And the Reformers are saying, we don't. This, by the way, historical detail has to do with the breaking of the bread and why Lutherans don't do it. Have you ever noticed that in the, in the rite of the supper? We don't, we don't do it for a couple of reasons. In the first place, because it has actually not any 
theological significance. It's just something Jesus did. He took the one loaf and he broke it. Why did he break it? Because he needed to distribute it. So that's the first reason why we don't care either here or there. But during this conflict, what the Reformed priests would tell their people is the body of Christ can't be broken. I mean, this is terrible theology. The body of Christ can't be broken. So when I break the bread, it's showing you it's not the body of Christ. The body of Christ is in heaven. You're eating bread with your lips and your heart's in heaven communing with Jesus. So how does that sound then in Lutheran ears who believe it is the body of Christ and want to receive it? Terrible! Terrible. You can't commune there. You're not in communion fellowship. All right. So Lutherans, for that reason and others, start to pour over here into the U.S., And as Lutherans do this, and and many other Christians of many other stripes, small congregations are formed. Uh, Some of these congregations can only commune once a year because there are so few pastors that pastors are literally walking and riding around in wagons and horseback trying to get to these distant churches so that they can have communion once a year. Now, in some ways, we're still fighting our way out of that because even today you can find some Lutheran churches that only commune like, you know, once a month or a couple times a month or that weird thing where it's like you have to, do al- you have to know algebra to figure out when they're communing. On the third Sunday at the eighth hour when the rooster crows, you know, and okay. Uh, So one of the things we're all kind of recovering is, hey, the Lord wants us to have communion every Sunday. That's glorious and blessed. And even if you look at Acts, uh, I think we're going to look at it the text next week, you see that from the very get-go, they're communing all the time, every Sunday. All these Lutheran congregations spring up, but like good Lutheran congregations, they don't want to be independent Lutheran congregations because there's no such thing. So they start joining in groups, and they call these groups synod. Synod just is a word that means walking together. So there's like the Ohio Synod, the Buffalo Synod, the North Carolina Synod, the Tennessee Synod, the Missouri Synod. Guess who survived? Yeah! (laughs) Missouri. But that's the origin of our weird name. So, as some people like to say, the misery synod. But no, come on, come on. So, you actually are members of the oldest Lutheran synod in America as members of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Now, you, now synods come and go, and that's the history of America, and they find themselves in fellowship and join up and all of these other things. Right now, there's pretty much three major synods Um, The largest being the ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America. This is the profoundly apostate and liberal synod. Sorry to put it so truthfully. Um, (laughs) But these are the people who are are messing around with the gender of God, allowing open homosexuals as pastors, women pastors, and um, basically... uh, Whatever you want to do is good, because if I tell you no, that's law, and we're just all about the gospel. So... Flee, flee for your lives. Um, all right, next largest in America, the LCMS. That's us. Um, we're just under, I think, 200, uh, wait, no, just under 2 million members. We have about 6,000 congregations. And then the next smallest, um, who, uh, if you know that, that meme where he says, are you friends? It's the two Star Trek guys. And the one guy goes, yes, and the other guy goes, no. <laughs> that's the Wells, the Wisconsin Evangelical Lutheran Synod. 
are you guys friends? The LCMS goes, yes, and they say no. <laughs> we see the differences with our brothers in the wells as, as small enough that they shouldn't make a separation. And the wells uh, say, no, it should make a separation. And plus, we think you guys are going liberal. And uh, at the time in which they said this, I think there was actually some truth to that concern. Now the fact of the matter is, in the Wells and in the LCMS, we're fighting many of the same battles. Liberalism and all of this progressivism trying to force its way in. And those of us who are not down with that being like, no, there's a church for you already with the name Lutheran. It's called ELCA. Go there. Or if you want to be evangelical so bad in how you look and how you worship and how you think and how you speak, then... Go be evangelical. Just leave us alone. Stop doing us the favor of trying to make us evangelical or trying to make us progressive. It's not a favor. Uh, so the LCMS is founded in 1847, by, and, and the first president is C.F.W. Walther. You might have heard that name. Walther writes law and gospel. He's a, sometimes called the American Luther. He's a really good guy. And um, then as we march along, uh, the, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod continues to spread until the 1960s. Here, faith is created. Faith Lutheran Church, and there's some debate about this, but 1966 is basically what we've more or less agreed upon. And so that was our, that was our birthday here. And um, the rest is kind of history. So here we are. Now, what does it mean uh, to be an LCMS congregation today? So there are various LCMS congregations spread geographically, and the first level we kind of unite ourselves at is the level we call circuits. It doesn't matter. I mean, you could call it anything you want. There's nothing sacred to this. In fact, that's kind of one of the themes of the Lutheran Church is how the church decides to govern itself is not commanded in the scriptures. There's nothing in the scripture that says you have to have a pope and a hierarchical structure. There's nothing that says you have to have a bottom-up congregational democratic system. Um, So what do we do as Lutherans? Meh, little of both. (laughs) Little of both. So we organize ourselves first as circuits. Um, There's a, I don't know what there is, like eight or nine congregations in faith circuit. And then the circuits form a geographic region called a district. And so we're in the Pacific Southwest District. We have a district president. Um, In case you want to get me in trouble, my supervisor at the circuit level um, is, they call them circuit visitor, and he's my ecclesiastical supervisor one level up. Um, I'll give you his name and contact information later. And then at the district level, we have presidents. So I'll give you his name and information later, too. But we've got, uh, and he, he kind of is, in a sense, really my ultimate ecclesiastical supervisor. If you go much further than that, it, you know, it's, it's kind of a synodical issue. Okay, so circuit to district to synod. Where is it, where is it bottom up? Because the congregations all are the ones voluntarily joining together, voluntarily joining at the circuit district and synodical level. Where is it top down? We ask and elect these people to be officials and to govern over us in such a way that, hey, where there's false doctrine, you should handle it and put it away. Where there's controversy, you should resolve it for us. Um, how are we going to provide for our next generation of pastors? We need you to make seminaries and train these men so that they all teach the same thing we all teach. 
Does that make sense? So it goes kind of bottom up and top down in that sense. Your money, as it goes into the offering plate, um, of course, Elise did such a wonderful job with that at the last voters' meeting, but your money, as it goes into the offering plate, um, goes locally here to take care of what um, needs to happen to keep the gospel being preached here in this place and the campus up and that kind of thing. 10% of that gets pushed on to our own charitable organizations, and a portion of that 10% goes up to the district level and goes up to the synodical level. So we, so the, the congregations of the LCMS send money up the chain. From time to time in, um, in, the his, in my, my time here at Faith, it's come up like, well, why don't we just get them to send us more money? <laughs> if only it worked that way. Hi, uh, President Harrison, president of the Synod of the Lutheran Church. Uh, can I have some money? <laughs> Got to get laughed at. So, uh, yeah, money generally goes up, and it comes down in specific ways. You know, if they're, um, for example, when the fires hit here uh, in in Laguna Hills, was it? Yeah. And uh, we immediately got a call from a synodical representative saying, if any of your members have been affected, if your congregations are affected, let us know. Let us know how we can help, what we can do. So it's kind of this nice symbiosis from bottom up and top down. Make sense? But we can take it or leave it. It doesn't matter. There's no chapter and verse for this in the scriptures. Okay? So as you become a member of faith, that is, as you are welcomed into communion fellowship, there you become a member of the body of Christ in this place. You also become a member of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod and all the other congregations that are in communion fellowship with us. Okay? Now, this is sometimes called altar fellowship. Okay, because we're all gathered around the altar. And it's also sometimes called pulpit fellowship, or short, altar and pulpit fellowship. It's why we don't just invite a Roman Catholic priest or an Eastern Orthodox priest or an Anglican. Are they priests? Whatever they are. Um, yeah, and, uh, or, or your local non-denominational pastor or whatever, we don't invite them to preach because there's a fellowship here. No, it's our people trained our way, and more on this in a minute, who are going to propagate the true faith and the true understanding of the sacraments. All right. Um, so, and that too is why visitors to our church, we don't just say, hey, come into communion right away. You're obviously united with us. No, we stop and say, hey, where are you coming from? What do you believe? What's your background? Here's what we believe, teach, and confess. Here's what unites us. Are you, do you find yourself united with that? Then join us, and we welcome you in. Okay. Um, so then here at the local congregation, let me just do one very quick tangent. How do pastors work? So... As a pastor, um, as, as, let's say you're a young man, you're just out of college, and you say, you know, I think I'd like to become a pastor in the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod. So you need to get, um, and there's a process for all of this, but the long and the short is you have to be approved by your congregational pastor, and you need to be a member for two years. Then you need to be approved by your district president and usually a board there that's kind of looking over your life and files. You need to be approved by the seminary upon entrance. And then seminary, while it is a, it is a training process, it's a little bit analogous. Guys who have been through basic training, a lot of what they say resonates with what first year is like. 
Right? You're taken out of your comfort zone, out of your context. Everything you thought you knew is pretty much destroyed. And it's time to rebuild you up into a pastor of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. And so the, the process, while it's very much academic, is also very much spiritual. You're in chapel every day. Uh, you're receiving something bigger, an, an ethos communicated to you by the entire church as you go through your classes you go through your, and there's, and there's weeders, right? Like if you can't pass your languages, if you're an open flaming heretic, um, these are reasons for you to maybe not advance in the seminary program. And then vicarage is another one because you realize, okay, this is what it actually looks like to have your boots on the ground and what it actually is to be a pastor. And some guys come back from vicarage and say, no, thanks. And others go through vicarage and their supervisor goes, not ready yet. This bun needs a little more time in the oven. Send another, send him out on another vicarage, all right. And um, and then by the end of your of your fourth year, there are all manner of psychological interviews, theological interviews, all of this other stuff going on. And assuming you pass all of that, then you have the approval of the seminary. The seminary um, right before the final call service, the seminary faculty all get together. And they read the list of names, and anyone who's opposed to sending a man out to be ordained and called, any one of the faculty members may stand up and state their case. I think I only had one or two stand up against me, which is encouraging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who are no longer at the seminary. <coughs> Excuse me. So, there are all kinds of checks and balances that get you... Uh, that gets you into the pastorate. Now, when you receive ordination in the Lutheran Church, this is a this is a right, a churchly right. When you receive ordination, it's basically the ministerium of the congregation saying, "We recognize you as one who is, who fits the biblical requirements to be a pastor." Okay, so there's frequently this laying on of hands that takes place, and then. All the, uh, all the old pastors, I'm one of those now, says a word of blessing or a word of scripture. And uh, that's the ordination. And then the call is what really makes you a pastor. A congregation has to call you. So um, should, you know, if I, were to, uh, if I were to go to heaven tomorrow, Faith Lutheran Church would engage in a call process. They would be seeking a new pastor. And that usually starts with a call committee that narrows it down to a few names, and you get their bios and what they're like and what their experience is. And then ultimately, the voters' assembly in the congregation makes a decision to call a, an individual man to be the pastor of that place. We view this, I don't have time to go into theology, there are proof texts from Acts, but we view this as the Holy Spirit operating through the church, calling a man. So that when you receive a man through this process, it is the Holy Spirit who has made him an overseer in that place. That's exactly the language from Acts 20 that Paul uses when he's talking to pastors. It is the Holy Spirit who has made you overseers. This is one of the blessed things. Even if you don't really like your pastor, that's fine. Who could blame you? Um, you still have to recognize that this is the man that the Holy Spirit has put into the office in this place. So ultimately, whether like it or not, this man is good for you. And, you know, if you get a terrible pastor, it might even be good for you and for the congregation to slowly, patiently straighten him out and make him fit for the office. 
or make him into the pastor you want him to be, which is basically um, a lot of what happens anyway. A uh, pastor goes in thinking, I'm going to shape and form all these people, and after a decade or so, he's completely changed and shaped and formed by the people. So there's this nice symbiotic growth there. All right, so as members of an LCMS congregation, why are you all leaving? Is it something I said? No, I'm just joking. <laughs> just joking. They have to get ready for the next service. 66? No wonder it's so heavenly. I'm sorry if you're... Uh, <laughs> we, we can shut it down if we need to. We can shut it down if we need to. I thought, did, you, did I write down... I thought you said, did I write down their names? And I was about to. Leaving class here. Anyway, okay, so you're, a, so you're a member of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. You're a member of Faith Lutheran Church. What does that mean? Obviously, you're communing here, okay? But you're a member of the body of Christ in this place. And so you want to look at your own gifts, what God has given you, and see how you can use them to serve. And we have all kinds of ways in which you can serve. I mean, they're innumerable. But at the formal level, I just want to talk to you about this. Um, At the formal level, faith is governed by the church council. The church council has a president and a treasurer and a head elder. Those are the head honchos. And then a bunch of other chairs, Now, the only one I'm going to mention specifically is the head elder, because there's almost a sense in which um, the head elder forms a board of elders, and that board of elders has sort of the spiritual care of the congregation, and the council proper has, like, care of the congregation in terms of the business workings and programming. Where's the pastor in this scheme? Well, kind of everywhere and nowhere. He's trying to, his only authority is, governing by the word of God. And so he's trying to teach and steer on the basis of God's word. And where he doesn't have God's word, then he speaks merely of his own personal opinion. So if we're going to debate about what the color of the new carpet in Agape Hall should be, my vote's no better or worse than anyone else's. Okay, And probably a lot worse. So... The pastor's only authority is in preaching and teaching the word of God, and the rest is to be decided via the means of government. So, council and elders. Now, the elders um, are given also as a body of direct responsibility and care for and over the pastor. So, if I'm messing up, who's going to come knocking on my door? Our head elder or the elders are going to say, hey, and they could say it really charitably, like, hey, that sermon it may have been right, but nobody got it. That's great for me to know. <laughs> so this is a wonderful thing. And they help me care. They help me as a pastor care because I say, hey, tell me what's going on. Or I, my week's full this week. Can you go there? Can you t- call here? And so elders are a great help in that respect. And then the council is of great help because they're running the programming. They're um, taking care of the business side, the property side, all of that kind of, the financial side, all of that kind of thing. So that's, in just a nutshell, kind of the governance of the congregation. And I would encourage you, um, I would encourage you that when uh, the council president or some other representative reaches out to you and says, hey, will you serve in this capacity, that you would view this as a kind of mini call from the church at large to say, we need help in this way, could you please help? And if you discover that your gifts or your time or your circumstances just don't fit that, then you might say, I can't in this way, but 
what's another way that I could help? Um, one of the crises we're going to have, I think, as LCMS congregations, as the years roll on, back in the 50s and 60s, there was a generation that really liked structure and apparently meetings. So big, big constitutions, big bylaws, huge councils with lots of different chairs and committees and subcommittees. And as generational shift has occurred, there's just less and less interest in that structure, less and less interest in attending meetings, which also makes it more and more essential that um, people be willing to participate as members in the leadership, volunteering, and service of the congregation because we're already stripping down to kind of bare essential kinds of things. So I want to encourage you in that respect and prayerfully reflect on those things. And if you're looking for some way to use your gifts or talents, uh, let me know, let Wendy in the office know, and we can usually find some way for you to plug in and use the gifts God's given you. But again, this all has to do with seeing that we are a family here in this place, and we are all members of the same body, that body being Christ Jesus. All right, conveniently, I've left myself less than a minute for any questions. Can't say that was strategic, but it kind of feels that way. There's one question. We'll entertain it. All right. It's just a a comment and a statement. Before the class, a vicar told me that the class was on membership, and I said, oh, boy, I might lose my faith today. (laughs) Wait, what was that? I I might lose my faith today. Oh, (laughs) But I'm fine. Okay, you made it. You survived? Yeah, it was great. Thank you. (laughs) Very good. All right. Yes, sir. One more. Uh, Maybe you could take this up with the, uh, you know, this isn't really at at the faith level, but, you know, I don't know how you can affect the uh, higher levels of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, but I think it would be really awesome if we renamed the office of president to pope. It would be, you know, something nice to do for our be Roman awkward, friends. and the CTCR just call it canon law. Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and everybody below get called cardinals and bishops and all those wonderful titles that Rome has. Yeah, and it yeah. would, you know, so it would make make for great clarity in the. Christian yeah, I can church. say with all certainty that the Lord will return before that happens. Yeah. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> yes, please. I have a question. You know, we're very fortunate here at Faith because everything's administered, in my view, is administered rightly. But across the nation, there is, in different pockets, perhaps, you'd go to an LCMS church and the pastor may or may not be wearing a robe or may or may not be uh, administering the liturgy, may or may not be using the hymnal or you know, and it's very demoralizing for people that are out there or that visit a church to see that that ecumenical um, r- rigor is administered throughout the LCMS. And is that a function of the seminaries, or is that a function of just not wanting to do it, or is there a... Well, it's a function of a departure, whereas the, uh, the Book of Concord and the Constitution of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod for virtually its entire history has celebrated unity in doctrine and unity in practice. Suddenly, as of the latter half of the 20th century, where all theological abominations have come, Uh, we have decided that there is somehow strength in not being unified. 
Now, it hasn't gone so far as not unified in doctrine, but not unified in practice, that there's this strength in diversity. What I recognize right away and can't help but recognize is that's different than what the LCMS has said for its 170-ish year history, and it's different than what the Book of Concord says and celebrates. That's what I notice. So I sympathize with that, and um, if, it, if, it continues, if it continues long enough, every synod has to face this, where eventually you go, you know, I'm not really sure we're in fellowship anymore. There are such, such manifest doctrinal and practical differences between us. It's rather deceitful for us to say we're one, one spirit, one mind, etc. So there are always these aberrations going on, in the history of the church, always, always. There's never a perfect church. There's never a perfect century of the church. Um, so we need to just take stock instead in the fact that there is nothing new under the sun. We need to keep fighting the good fight. And yeah, if enough, if, if enough actually manifests itself and exhausts itself, there will become a time where, in one way, shape, or form, the LCMS splits. Um, and, and I can talk about that later um, off the record. Yeah. So, okay, wait, I thought there was something else really important, but we're out of time. The Lord be with you.